Are you thinking of the same thing that I'm thinking? <laughs> I'm the best singer of the world. Yeah. Finally touching Arizona Smith here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. What is this? This is a film podcast for all types of films. We both have a media background. I'm media assistant and Henrik is studying to be the master of arts. How's your German, Henrik? My dear co-host. Well, you know, in case Nazis ever rise up again, the old-fashioned version and not the neo-shit we have to go through at the moment, it's not good, but I think I can bluff enough to make everybody believe that I really am Uberstorm Waffle, and <laughs> I most definitely should be put on the control of the fighter jet brigade. At some point, I was pretty convinced that we should have a German German visitor for this episode, just to translate to us those German bits and check out if they make how much sense. I'm sure they do, but I'm always curious to know what they say, because my German is what it is. I did have lessons for two years and didn't learn anything. Sorry to say. Bit the same history with me. Yeah. And also, when it comes to Germany, I haven't used the language years at this point. What I did learn is extremely rusty. I don't even bother trying to translate the German dialogue in movies. I just completely go with the subtitle track. I'm lazy in that way. Yeah, and the <clears throat> awkward confessions that we have to go through in this podcast because we are brutally honest. This is, if nothing, self-humiliating experience doing these episodes. <laughs> but, but I did learn this. Guten Tag. I welcome, and that's Swedish to save my ass. Okay, moving on. This is not Bridget Jones. This is Raiders of the Lost Ark. And originally it didn't have the Indiana Jones in the title, by the way. Just so that our listeners know who don't know, that is the case. Well, not in the original advertisements either. At, at least in Finland, where it was simply, you know, Karoneenarte Metsästäjät. The Seekers of the Lost Treasure. Indeed, I remember that. And from that we can get naturally to our experiences with this film. Well, in my case, once again, completely unsurprisingly, it is my father and the video rentals. Here you go, Henrik. Here's the VHS for the Hunters of the Lost Treasure. And I will tie you up to this sofa. You have to watch it for two hours. No questions asked, because this is film history, Henrik. Yeah, to me, it didn't go, that the first time didn't go that way. Originally, I, my father, who is a man of culture, did know who was Steven Spielberg and had heard about Raiders and did know something about indie. It was still a relatively new thing, especially in Finland. And, you know, he simply rented it for himself out of curiosity, to see what all the fuss was about. And I was allowed to watch the film with him. It wasn't one of those mandatory cinematic experiences that were forced upon me. And later on, the Finnish TV channel MTV3 had the habit of airing the Last Crusade, 
during the Christmas time. It was every Christmas Eve that they would show the film, and they did that for years. And it came a habit or tradition in our household that me and my father would watch Crusade every Christmas Eve. <laughs> yeah, in, in my part, this is very influential film. Something that I can say I grew up with, or not Raiders in specific, but Indiana Jones altogether. It's something that really was a big part of my childhood. To a part where I had most of the comics that were printed, and I did have the rule book for the tabletop RPG, with which I did absolutely nothing because of my lack of English skills, but I did have it. I spent my childhood with Indy to an extent as well. Once again, because in Herl Hollola we had this stash of legendary VHS tapes recorded by whoever, but thank you for that, and it this VHS had a bunch of legendary films. One of them was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was completely hooked, especially with the snake scene in the middle parts of the film. It's terrifying. I left a lasting mark to me when I was 10 or 11 or so. I guess Indiana Jones franchise is one of those cases that for everyone who has not grown up in a complete barrel, at some point Indiana Jones has been the cause for the sudden interest in archaeology and the idea that, you know, when I grow up, I most definitely want to be an archaeologist. Yeah, that's only one of the things that kind of influenced people to choose different career paths or, or paths. You know, this has been inspirational to become an archaeologist. It has been inspirational to become a screenwriter, director, probably actor as well. To me, at least, you know, Raiders and... And Indiana Jones franchise was the reason why I, at some point, I really was thinking about getting into archaeology. And then my mother came up and explained to me that Nazi Germany has long since been over. And, you know, being an archaeologist does not mean that you get to punch Nazis in the face and have crazy adventures. But instead, you are in some desert brushing off some age-old urns and bowls. And that didn't appeal to you? Not the slightest. Okay. And you? Those are the hard life lessons that in the end will get you in the ass end of Finland doing media study. Because you realize that there is no that one simple profession where you can equip yourself with a bullwhip and beat Nazis and commit a murder on a public space repeatedly and get away with it. But she didn't mention the whip or the fedora, so you could have used those. And then brush the ancient artifacts. Well, you know, using a whip is something that I still try to pull off in media studies. If you ask anyone who has to work with me. What kind of movies are you making exactly in this (laughs) university? I I have ways to motivate people. (laughs) Synopsis of this film. Well, the Nazis have gotten information about the location of the Ark of the Covenant. And Indiana Jones is sent to recover this artifact before the Nazis do. That pretty much is the entire film. Plot-wise, this is quite a simple case. Yeah, why did we choose it? Eh, well, once again, I think it's me who chose it, but we haven't touched upon a Steven Spielberg film here, or anything that's related in any way to George Lucas, so essential viewing. Would you agree? I would. I mean, we did have 
talks that we should do the encounters from Spielberg at some time. Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't touched that one yet. Something happened to it, you, you know. Well, we did punch in that Nightmare on Elm Street and a bunch of others to kind of help us on the way to do something easier after Apocalypse Now. And I'm really happy to go through this film after something like Pretty Village, Pretty Flame, as amazing that film is. Like a tour de force film, as you said. But goddamn, <laughs> 13 ver- versions of edits and uh, the subject is so volatile, but... It was probably our best episode so far, so if you haven't listened to it, go listen right now. Yeah, the past episodes, once again, have been quite challenging and pretty rough on us. Not just Pretty Village, but also Akira at points. Yeah. Went to a pretty hard territory for us to do an episode. So in many cases, now doing Raiders, which doesn't carry that much any deep symbolism or politically loaded context is kind of a, almost like having a break. Like almost feels almost like being on a vacation now to do a simple film where there is some chauvinism and weird cultures in a franchise that has racist stereotypes and Christian imagery. But hey, in here, in Riders, there's a lot of punching Nazis in the face. So in that sense, we are completely clear. There is, and that's politically, of course, completely okay. Or actually, it's not. Neo-Nazis is an exception, I hear, but historical Nazis is fine. Historical Nazis are always fine. Basically, you can take a Nazi and drown him in his own sperm and still have the moral high ground because the dude was a Nazi. Yeah, just don't don't try it in uh, California or Washington nowadays. <laughs> History and background of this film... Well, in 74, Mr. George Lucas wrote The Adventures of Indiana Smith, and it just so happened that Lucas was kind of busy with his Star Wars that exploded to all hell, and he was kind of busy with that, but he was happy to give the project to somebody who had more time to devote to it. So Steven Spielberg had been planning of doing some kind of a James Bondian adventure of his own, Maybe to do even a James Bond, but he didn't. I don't know what to think about that. It would have been an interesting thing to see, but it never materialized. So he was talking about this project of his with George Lucas, and Lucas already had the story for this, and Spielberg said, that's great, but your name of Indiana Smith sucks, so will they then change it to Indiana Jones? Also, the Jones was a suggestion of Lucas, and that's how it basically came about. Yeah, as far as I understood, Lucas had tried to get the project off the ground with Philip Kaufman before approaching to Spielberg, but that was put on a hiatus when Kaufman was hired to direct the Clint Eastwood western <clears throat> flick, The Outlaw, Josie Wales. Okay. So this was something that Lucas had been kicking around for some time, but like so many times in Hollywood, people get into projects and calendars never match. And you don't get that open position to actually try to get off your latest, greatest project off the ground because you are so incredibly busy doing everything else. But, you know, luckily, yeah, luckily for everyone, Lucas did meet up with Spielberg and they ended up building sandcastles. 
because without that meeting, there might never be Indiana Jones, or not at least in the form that we have it today. Yeah, building sandcastles as a grown man. I don't know. Well, of course, if you're talented with that, that's probably a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, talented. George Lucas did take part in building the castle, so I don't know. Sure thing. And Spielberg, well, he's extremely talented art-wise. Since from his childhood he had very strong memories of some things that happened there, like the tree that was outside of his window, I think, and it became very scary during the night time, and all kinds of these different visions that he later in different ways implemented into his films. Dear listeners, or Henrik, do you know who was actually first cast as the Indiana Jones? I have heard this. Uh, uh, I, yep, I'm hearing Bertie from the crowd. Correct, Bertie. Bertie just said that uh, Tom Selleck was cast as Indy. Was he cast or was he considered? He was actually cast, but then he had some kind of engagements and had to fuck off. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, Tom Selleck did have previous engagements. And Lucas even was kind of hesitant to throw in Ford for the role because he didn't want Harrison becoming kind of a stable name in his list of actors. Harrison had already done Han Solo in Star Wars, so Lucas was kind of afraid that Harrison becomes one of those names like Johnny Depp is to Tim Burton and wanted to avoid that and because of that was considering, for example, Tom Selleck for the role. I I totally understand that. And I, I was thinking about that when I was watching this film again. I mean, you have Han Solo, you have Indiana Jones, later on you have Blade Runner. So he's kind of popping all over the place. But then again, he definitely fits for this role. Steven Spielberg was watching, was it an early cut of The Empire Strikes Back? And he was looking at Harrison Ford and thought that that's definitely our Indiana Jones. And having nothing against Tom Selleck as an actor, I quite do like the guy. I must kind of admit that I am quite happy that, you know, Selec did have other engagements and couldn't take the role. Mm. This, of course, being something that bugged the hell out of Selec after he saw Riders. He was incredibly pissed. Was he? To his calendar for the fact that he had to skip on Riders. Yeah. And yeah, this missing on all the Indiana Jones action. It ate up Tom Selleck so much that some years later he finally tried to have his chance on similar kind of a franchise with High Road to China, where you pretty much can actually see that this is Tom Selleck trying to get back on the chance and back on to make a film like Raiders. Okay. There is a lot of bridges that you can build between Star Wars and uh, Indie Universe. For example, the canyon in the film is the same where R2-D2 is taken away in Star Wars. And they filmed this in Tunisia for the majority of the parts. So not in Egypt. It was in Tunisia, the familiar location for Lucas and his group from Star Wars. And it is the film that eventually led Ford to be cast in Blade Runner. Steven Spielberg, only one of the most popular directors and producers of all time. So what to say about him? Rose to prominence with Jaws, 
1975. Best known for directing something evil and episode of Columbo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he did the Columbo, okay. He also did some lesser known film shows like Encounters. Yeah, never heard. Never heard. Also has done E.T., the entire Indiana Jones trilogy. He directed Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, The Terminal, Catch Me If You Can, Jurassic Park, like you mentioned, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Minority Report, AI Artificial Intelligence, and recently Ready Player One, which I still haven't seen, but I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Which, on my end, I'm trying to skip as long as humanly possible. Why? I'm dreading, just dreading to see the film. I haven't read the book, but I've heard some things about it, which really have not piqued my interest in any level. And I did catch the trailer for Ready Player One, and it kind of reeks of this later year Spielberg, which I'm not that interested about anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, it could be too fantastical to my tastes, but Spielberg still has this. Certain eye that I usually like to enjoy visually. He's in every way he's very capable filmmaker. I'm not countering on that, and he still does make very good films, especially technically good films. But I, on my end, I kind of feel that Spielberg has become a bit lazy now on his later years. When you look at his outings that have come out. The Post, The Bridge of Spice, The Big Fucking Giant. You kind of just don't see the same, or I don't get the feeling of the same itch and the same kind of this headstrong pathfinder going his own way kind of attitude anymore on those films. He's mainly known for pretty much only, uh, let's say, 10 films, like really known for these films. And the rest of the time he's been extremely busy producing films. And, well, you don't really get to be known by producing. Like, in practice you're giving your money away to a project that seems to be interesting for you, that might multiply your money. I think that's kind of how I see producing, so it's nothing very interesting. Then again, in, in Spielberg's defense, when your filmography holds many of the IMDb top 250 films in it. You know, you, you set your own bar quite high. I am very understanding that every film that Spielberg put, puts out is not as influential as his best films, the ones he's most known of. Yeah. But even with that in mind, I, I kind of feel that during these later years, Spielberg has mainly just made a Steven Spielberg film, which of course, seeing how this is also the man who in many ways has been in extremely influential and has paved new roads for for cinema in total. It is kind of a, I don't know if sad is the right word to use here, but somehow, you know, I, I still wish that someday I could go to movie theater into a Steven Spielberg film and managed to see a film like like Raven, like Jaws, or, you know, one of these mark setters in cinema. And I haven't felt that I've gotten that with Steven Spielberg's latest. Extremely hard, it seems. Even for filmmakers who basically have 
autonomy of everything with the money that they have in their back pocket. Like Spielberg uh, is worth like 3.7 billion dollars, I believe, or or his bank account holds that much much money. I think I would say Steven Spielberg him, himself is extremely. You cannot count his value in money for what he has done for the cinema. No, you can't. But his parents were still born in the U.S., but their parents were born in uh, Ukraine or in the Ukraine, and then they moved to the United States. Funnily enough, Spielberg's father is still very much alive. Who would have thought? He's hundred and two years old. <laughs> He's alive. Finding that man is gonna—I have a feeling—is gonna be the theme of the next Indiana Jones film that he's currently working on. <laughs> Maybe one more for Sean Connery. Maybe who knows? The old man can come back from retirement. Yeah, they can be, you know, old Indiana Jones looking at his father and Steve's father and trying to deduct which one is the mummy. Pictures suggest that Sean Connery has some trouble walking these days but that's the perks of coming old well george lucas well he has directed the original star wars obviously and the original 2000s prequel star wars episodes one two three which didn't go down so well with the fans and the critics it's kind of like lucas is best known for not directing such cinematic classics as the empire strikes back return of the jedi The entire Indiana Jones franchise, Kagemusha, Citizen Kane, The Usual Suspects. Yeah, I mean, other than those few, he actually hasn't directed anything when it comes to feature films. Like, there's Star Wars, DHX-1138, and American Graffiti, and that's it. So, he must be quite content with the insane success that he already got back in the 70s with Star Wars. I mean, surely he doesn't need to do anything. He has way more writing and producing credits to his name than directing credits, that's clear. And kind of interesting how, well, it's not surprising, but still, he has this enigmatic image and uh, this epic name, <laughs> and everybody knows George Lucas, even though he has just directed, what, six films. And that is something that, not to kick the man no. around, but I... I kind of have the umbrage with the fame that Lucas has. Sure, the man has produced some of the greatest films, and what I've gathered from the behind-the-scenes material, he has come up with many of the great ideas. Like, for example, he did come up with the original idea for Raiders and the Indiana Jones films, and I've come to understand that he was extremely influential and extremely large in his role to take part in making the films and working with Steven. And so he has done his part yeah. when it comes to the classic masterpieces like Star Wars and Indiana Jones. But I quite often I hear the defense given to Lucas how we should not be hard on Lucas when it comes to the prequel trilogy because Lucas made Star Wars, because Lucas made... Indiana Jones, and he, in in part he did, but he didn't direct most of any of that. And I am quite actually, I can't quite figure out why it is that Lucas gets so much credit and has such a mythical, a legend back supporting him, seeing how 
the directing often was done by someone else and Kasadan was very largely behind the scripts and you know often Lucas gets the credit for the work that someone else has done. And even when you look at you know Indiana Jones franchise, well Lucas sure as fuck did play a big part of behind the scenes, but when you look at what happened behind the scenes of the Indiana Jones films, it quite often comes up that what Lucas brought to the table was less than magnificent. And in many cases, uh, the end result which we had in any of the Indiana Jones films was due to Steven telling to Lucas to shut his mouth and telling him that his ideas are terrible. Like, to give you an example, making the Last Crusade to be a haunted house story. Then you have Steven telling Lucas that, no, get the fuck out of the room with your haunted house bullshit. I'm giving you the Nazi castle in one scene, but that's all you are going to get with this haunted house shit. Or, you know, the, the toaster around idea of Indiana Jones and the Sorcerer from Mars, which also was shot down by Steven. And when it comes to the Kingdom of Crystal Skull, you know, judging by the behind-the-scenes material, it, it appears that, or it very much looks like that the reason why we have the aliens in Crystal Skull is because Steven Spielberg eventually got too tired of telling George Lucas to shut his face and finally just let Lucas have his way when it came to plot ideas. Yeah, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are like the Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli of their respective films because George Lucas is also this kind of a guy who has this pretty grandiose and childish and incredibly crazy large ideas that may not fit in the film at all but he, he just pulls this up and then he says that this must feature in the film and and Spielberg is being the kind of the sound of reason like come on this is ridiculous but you still have to put some of his ideas on the screen well they are similar without the financial suicide of Harry Saltzman basically Lucas I understand is still doing fine and should be yeah he has enough company cloud behind him so that i believe that he has made already enough money from star wars alone to last at least 17 lifetimes yeah scene by scene henrik are you ready as ready as ever beautiful well i decided to do something different this time because we endlessly rave on about how amazingly technical we are. So let's get finally amazingly technical in the episode 30 or so. So I would like to start by going through the first three minutes of this film extremely technically, or at least in the sense that I would like to go through like what kind of a shots these are and what kind of a motion is going on in the shot and what's the meaning of the shot and whatever else I might have about this starting three minutes. So I don't know what you're going to get off this, but maybe it will spark your interest in filmmaking or not. <laughs> Probably not. But, you know, to give you the structure of how this thing works right here and what you could read into it and so on and so forth. Okay, so we start with the Paramount logo, which then crossfades into a real mountain that looks like the Paramount mountain. So the first shot is a mid shot. It zooms out, it tilts to see the two goons that come after Indiana Jones. This first shot establishes the faces of the two goons. 
but we're not yet revealing the face of Indy. Next shot, walking. It's a full shot. It's a tracking shot. The meaning is to travel. And uh, it kind of goes on a little bit longer here, the whole walking part to display the starting titles. That's pretty much it. But the function of this shot is to see that people are walking indeed. And they are walking more in the next shot, which is a mid-shot tracking shot, low angle. And then we have the third walking shot. It's a mid-shot tracking shot. Meaning here is to show more travel and focus on the mysterious guy with the fedora. There's a focus on Indy. This happens when the titles say, and then Holm Elliot. And that's kind of the first part of the three minutes. The part one paramount part, how I call it. Then there's the part two mural. Part two mural starts with establishing shot, as these parts usually start. So it's an establishing shot through the jungle. It's a long shot at our group. It's a tracking shot from high angle. Meaning is probably to show the might of the looming quality of the jungle. Jungle dominates over the actors. It's a new open area that they come to at this point. It introduces more of the play area where they are. So the people walk in the field. We look through the jungle trees. And the reason why it's a long shot, because it's a new type of an open area that they need to show to the audience. Possibly giving authority to the jungle over the people, because it's from a high angle. This appears, this shot, when the titles say Director of Photography. Then we have Leg Shot. More mysterious shots at Indy. It's a close-up. Still shot, the camera is not moving, pretty much. Adding mystery to Indy. Then at 1.15, we have an ass shot. The animal ass. It's a mid-shot, still shot, at the moment when we have editor Michael Kahn on the screen. Meaning is to show that they tie up the ass and more traveling. 1.25, we cut to cutting of the branches. It's a close-up of one of the goons when he is cutting with the jungle knife. It's a still shot. Then we have 127, mural is revealed. Would you call it a mural or rock carving or how would I, you call it? My take has always been that it's a statue of some sort. Statue, okay. I thought yeah, it but was... Oh, yeah. Of course, it's hard to say since you only see, see the front side of it. Hmm. Okay, so it's a close-up still shot of the shocked traveler now. And then we have at 1.30 the mural full shot. It's a still shot, camera not moving. 1.36, the two goons in the same camera angle. It's first like a medium long shot, which is like uh, cutting the character around the middle of the legs. And then it moves to medium shot, which cuts the person around the waist. And it's a still shot, as most of these are. Probably also practical reasons, because it's a jungle. <laughs> How many <laughs> tracking shots are you gonna get? At this shot, we see them approaching the carving, surprised and coming to the scene of interest. At 139, we have a mural full shot slash two shot. Two shot meaning there are two people in the shot. It's a still shot, still being surprised by the mural. 149, goons from the front. It's a medium shot which becomes a medium close-up and a two-shot. That basically ends the part two, mural, or rock carving. And we move on to part three, river. Why? Because at this point they're crossing the river at 152, and we have again like an establishing shot. It's a long shot. 
we just see when they cross the river. So we're entering kind of a new area and a new point of interest after the surprise of the rock carving. So 202, goons walk and they see the arrow in the tree. And first it's a medium long shot and then the goons come to the camera so it's a close up and then moves on to a wide shot when we see Indiana Jones walking away. It is a slight tracking shot. 240, wide shot, tracking shot, Indy taking from the back adding to the mysticity of the character. 244 at the, the text, the TG, the titles South America, 1936. You have a wide shot, tracking shot. 248, arrival to the river. It's a medium long shot, still shot. And uh, 251, handing the map to Indy. It's a close-up of the hand. And moving on to medium close-up of the goon. 257, goon is staring at map. Medium shot of goon slash close-up of the map. 305, goon before drawing a gun, close-up on the goon. Then 308, drawing the gun, close-up of gun. Uh, 310, in this silhouette is in the screen, it's a close-up. 311, goon raising the gun, close-up. So you now you get the increased amount of close-ups. So first, we usually start with like establishing shot, wide shots, long shots, and then we get closer and closer as the uh, action intensifies as it does now it's of course plenty of like super short cuts one after the other so 312 it's in this whip on the screen close up and 312 again in this whip in the air close up 313 in this whip once again it's close up and kind of a cowboy shot of the goon cowboy shot is like a cut usually shown in uh, westerns and it means that they are giving more space. It's a little bit wider than medium shot. The cowboy shot is wider than the medium shot. It's a little bit lower to the legs because the reason is to show uh, the gun that they have in their holster and give you know breathing space for that. Then 313 in this whip and indie in a wide shot or full shot. 314 goon in a close up. 315 gun drops to water. Kind of a full shot of the gun. 3.15, Goon escapes, close-up. 3.20, Indy is revealed in a close-up. 3.24, Goon runs, medium long shot. 3.24, other Goon looks at Indy, surprised, medium shot. 3.27, Indy close-up. And after this, the kind of the tension escapes the moment, and they move on to the cave. That's the notes from that. Nothing that special, but as you can see, there's a shit ton of things going on, and... I didn't even get into the music or the sound effects and how they would intensify or play along with the scenes. Yeah. But this is something quite great in the how the film is edited, which is presented here at the first time, where the film works in a way that before the action, you very much get these longer establishing shots where the camera stays still and there is very sparse editing letting you kind of see a long take of the shot and helps you getting into the mood and this mysterious atmosphere of what's happening. And once the action starts, the editing becomes much more quicker. A lot of quick chops is being used. Exactly. Yeah, to highlight the hecticity of the situation. This is something that you once again see later on in the opening of the film when you contrast how the cave itself is being shown and how the film is being edited 
before indie sets off the trap mechanisms inside the cave. And after when that has happened and when Indy has to escape from the cave as it's collapsing. Yeah, indeed. It's a very good point to make. So not only the like the camera angles get more closer to the subject, but you get like more sped up cutting. Yeah, you have your your John Williams also intensifying at the same moment. It is all of the many factors of filmmaking working in pretty much in perfect harmony with each other. Yeah. Creating moments that, since they are so kind of different from how, how the film has played out until the action breaks out, the action itself feels extremely intense throughout the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And if there would be anything I would criticize in these shots, it's not exactly obvious for you when you watch it on the first go for this episode. At least I didn't really pay attention, but. In the very first shot with the Paramount logo and then crossfading to the jungle, the shot ends with introducing of the goons and the other goon is a little bit taller than the other one. And it kind of seems like the, that for a moment the camera operator forgets that he has to tilt the camera a little bit more upwards so that he can get the face of the second goon to the shot. But yeah, it's something that I notice when I start to really get deep into this. But overall, yeah... Like the first shot, there's a lot going on, a lot of planning involved, and pretty solid stuff. This helps to explain exactly why Raiders has become so influential film. Yeah, I actually read that uh, <laughs> that the inspiration for the cave scene was coming from Uncle Scrooge comics. And I definitely see it, and no wonder that I so liked this film when I watched it as a kid, because... I was, of course, I've always been like a huge Donald Duck, Uncle Scrooge, Walt Disney comics type of guy. So you can see all of that, like this impossible mechanics at work getting their energy from who knows what, like Kali's endless rage energy. There is a lot in the opening that indeed does draw from old Donald Ducks or Uncle Scrooge comics. Yeah. In particular, being the here, the case being the Car Parks story, the Seven Cities of Cibola. Oh, yeah, good pick to yeah. note here. But there is like the most obvious similarity is indeed the giant boulder that Indy must escape. But also, if you if you contrast the ancient relic which they are after in the Seven Cities of Cipolla story, this rare statue. And you look at it, and then you look at the golden idol in Raiders. It's not one-on-one, but you can spot some similarities between the two, if you pay close attention. There's a lot of humor, of course, going on in this film. When they have to whip and the other guys going through the void, the drop, you know, he catches Indy and then basically hugs him because of his he's terrified and whatnot. And I on top of that, I do love how well the movie does its cinematic storytelling throughout the film, but how it starts off incredibly strong in Raiders. From the moment they enter the cave, the cinematography really sets up the theme and the feeling of the film and the universe where the film takes place. And to hunger back to, to the scene where Indy, for example, meets the, the spiked corpse of Forrestal. 
who went into the cave system before Indy. From that scene alone, you kind of get the rough feeling about this subculture of treasure hunters and how they take part in these incredibly dangerous journeys and how they all kind of know each other in the professional circles. And you get you get this world building in that one scene alone where you get these rough ideas about these mercenary archaeologists and and how they exist in the film's universe. And it does not go, however, overboard with its ideas in a way that the ideas that it presents are quite simple. Simple enough that you can get away with this loose introductions without explaining to a point who they are and how they conduct their business and other such stuff. And you also don't get the other famous scene that often plagues movies like Raiders, where they try to hammer in so much kind of this open-ended material, mystical prophecies and the chosen one narratives and what else the film comes bogged down with them. And you all start to kind of hope that they would actually go into more detail, trying to explain that what are all these concepts that the film just name drops and never dwells deeper into. Looking especially cases like, like for example, you know, The Mummy 2, mm-hmm. the Scorpion King film, which tried to pull off the similar kind of a stunt giving you rough ideas around the characters and the mythology of the universe and how the film's universe works, but never name-dropped so much stuff that you started to want more explanation on everything that was name-dropped to you, and the film never dwelled deep enough into the concepts that it provoked. Yeah, now when I'm looking at this scene, I remember being even slightly disappointed by the rest of the film, or at least the middle parts of the film, because this opening scene is so strong that I wanted as a kid to see even more this kind of a cave dwelling and going past this kind of alarm points and hunting for missing artifacts. I mean, you could even just do a film about that, basically, being in the cave and watching out for your for your life. But it's a hell of an introduction for this character, and definitely not saying that the rest of the film is inferior it's just so strong and can't imagine a better starting point and if we go by you know temple of doom neither could the franchise (laughs) to get into an opening this strong i would say that the last crusade managed to nail it but for example in the temple of doom opening even though it, it is very strong and it is in my opinion, it's very well done opening. It still is not quite as high as it is in Raiders. Yeah, the director likes to have all kinds of things happening in scenes where you would not expect any kind of danger or any more interesting stuff to happen. But no, they have to throw the snake on, on the plane. You always have these things happening. That's a sign of a good director. The same thing actually repeats in so many places. For example, the bar scene, which we get later on, but in the bar scene, you know, which would be kind of a boring scene in itself, just people talking. But instead of that, Marion is going crazy with the shot glasses, (laughs) being a very nice bar owner and throwing them all around and breaking them and moving them from the table 
back to the bar desk. So always something happening that's important. Uh, that is, and Spielberg does have the consistency in his films that w- when he does action, he very much tries to put in these small moments where something extra happens on top of the fist fight. Like, you know, hunker back to the bar scene and the, and the fist fight they have in the bar. There is, every now and then, the fight itself gets, I don't say interrupted, but introduced something new, like like this one-off element that they use then and there during the fight and never again during the entire rest of the fight. Like when Indy is, for example, pushed over the park counter, there is that one moment where Indy asks for whiskey and Marion passes the bottle over to Indy and Indy uses the bottle to mash it on the goon's head. There is often this that kind of a small moments. Or just before that, the moment when the main Nazi bad guy turns over the bottle of booze and lights it on fire so that there is this line of fire that is going around the power counter. Yeah, something I realized during this whiskey moment is when listening to the riff tracks track for, for this film, which for our listeners is the kind of a track where two or three guys joke around the movie commenting on it when they're watching it. Which is definitely something that you should avoid. <laughs> you didn't like those? Never been fan of riff tracks. Okay. I, I mean, I, I know they are extremely highly valued entertainment product, but well. for, for some reason their comedy has never hit home with me, and I more often than not even find them quite irritating. I'm looking forward to our first comedy film in this podcast. No, but uh, I consider myself to be kind of hard to entertain with jokes. And it's not like all of them like work for me at all. But there are some like small moments where they really have some good points, good good ideas. We get to the classroom scene where Brody comes into the class. He's the first one to disturb Indy. I don't think there's a sexual connotation there, but... Then there is the girl with the love you message in his eyes, which kind of distracts Indy. Which is actually kind of problematic when you think about it when we get to the Marion scene and the age factor coming up. It is, and it's also problematic when, you know, just a few minutes deeper into the film, when Marcus is visiting Indy's home. Okay, we'll get to that too. But anyway, I don't know where Prody is working, but he seems to have no regard for the apples that this student with his hard-earned money used on that apple, and then Brody just takes it away to his own pocket. Isn't Brody kind of like the dean of the university where Indy teaches? Kind of the headmaster? Could be. And simply because of that, he's, of course, obviously entitled to his staffs, including Indy's possessions, like the apple. Yeah, looks like it. He's playing around with different kind of artifacts and... Oh, whoops, there he goes and takes those as well to his pockets. What is going on with this guy? Yeah, my take was that Brody also somehow creates the museum, or he's the one who has the... Since Indy is talking about selling those two items to the museum, since that's kind of how Indy finances his treasure hunting trips. The man Mm. still being this mercenary treasure hunter after all. And I guess 
Brody in knows the museum curators or then he is the head of the museum. And since Brody already agrees that the museum will indeed purchase the objects, it's now for Brody to simply put them in his pockets. So we get some more fancy gentlemen into this hall of the school to talk about something very important. And do you know who these characters are? Because I might have missed this fact. They are just some very fancy gentlemen who know a thing or two about Nazis. It's never stated out directly where they work, but I would take that they are the security branch of the home office. Hmm. Government workers, most likely, you know, military security or intelligence division. And it's revealed that Indy has studied under Professor Ravenwood in the University of Chicago, and this makes the linkage to Marion. Indy is asked of the professor's whereabouts. Uh, He can only say that he might be somewhere in Asia. European sections have intercepted a German communique, which is sent from Cairo to Berlin, because Nazis have been looking for all kinds of religious artifacts. And it's no different here. Hitler is obsessed with the occult, meaning the knowledge of the hidden. So there's German digging going on in Cairo, and there is this city of Tanis. Tanis Development Proceeding, Acquire Headpiece Stuff of Ra, Abner Ravenwood, US. That's the telegram that they receive, that the Nazis have sent from Cairo to Berlin. So the Nazis have discovered the city of Tanis, the ancient city of Tanis, one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, where Hebrews used to carry the Ten Commandments in several pieces. So the Hebrews took the pieces and put them in the Ark. When they settled in Canaan, they put the Ark in a place called Temple of Solomon, Jerusalem. It stayed there for years until it was suddenly gone, and nobody knows to where or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh invaded the city of Jerusalem on 1980 BC and may have taken the Ark back to Tanis and may have hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. A year after the pharaoh would return to Egypt, Tanis was consumed by the desert in a sandstorm that lasted a whole year. And Abner is an expert on Tanis, but he never found the city. Nazis are looking for the headpiece of the staff of Ra and thinks... Abner's got it. He doesn't, but he gets killed anyway. Later on, we get this information. And staff of Ra, it's basically the same as saying stick of Ra. You take the staff to a special room in Tanis, a map room with a miniature, and when staff is situated against the sun and the miniature at the right time, it would reveal the location of Well of Souls. For whatever reason, the army that carries the Ark before it is invincible, except... Nobody kind of paid attention to the fact that there might be some practical problems kind of controlling this kind of a thing and how it would exactly help an army and how it would exactly help an army of Nazis. Since Nazis are, of course, the most kind-hearted individuals. The mechanics around the art and how it works indeed are, if you want to pay attention to it, quite messy. Yeah, I always thought it was a bit of a stretch to say that you will become invincible by having this arc, you know. Talk about cutting some corners there, but it's a film. Yeah, I myself, I don't have a problem with with the notion that the arc will make you invincible. Especially seeing later on in the film what kind of powers the arc 
holds within it. But th- there is that one scene where they first show the Ark manifesting its power. When it kills the rat, when they are transporting the Ark by ship. So in that moment you kind of get the notion that the Ark actually radiates something that is dangerous and harmful for living things. And you take that notion with the fact that every time the Ark is being shown in use or being transported, like for example in the illustration in, in the book that Indies is showing to the government types here on this scene, it is actually done by four men carrying the Ark and therefore being in extremely close proximity to the Ark which radiates something that is lethal. So how the hell does the four men manage to carry over this Ark from one place to another and not die themselves during the process? Yeah, the Ark decided so by itself. Um, unknown. It's mystical, magical powers. The Ark has read the script and knows that, you know. You you can't yeah. kill your own carriers. That's the thing. And from here we could turn our attention to the question, is this coming from a hardcore religious people, Henrik? Is this like a religious statement that the Ark is indeed dangerous, period, and we believe that? Or... Do you need to be religious to, I don't know how to say this correctly, but do you think that the intention was that, okay, we are a bunch of religious people and here's a bunch of religious things that we believe that could be the case that how the ark works or, or is it a statement that because there's a Bible and because I believe in it, then therefore there are these magical powers related to the story? Well, that's, that's actually quite, Quite a tricky question, which you propose, because... Yeah, in my understanding, Spielberg was never a very religious person, and in fact, in his youth, he was kind of ashamed of his parents, who would have these religious moments, and he was teased a lot in school, and got punched a couple of times, and got some nosebleeds, and it was a really heavy time for Spielberg, and I don't think that's the angle that he, he is coming from anyway. No, the obvious answer, the one you've kind of first come into is, in my opinion, of course not. Yeah. Since each core, even though Riders does borrow extremely lot from Christian mythology, but Riders also, it's in his heart, Riders and the entire Indiana Jones franchise is pulp adventures put on the screen and, well, first of all, Pulp adventures themselves are a format of media that quite often does take these shortcuts. Where they, for example, introduce something mythical and make the case that it has powers. Like, like for example here, there, there is the Ark of Covenant and whoever carries the Ark is invincible. And it never goes too much into detail how, why, or anything like that. The Ark in itself is simply a MacGuffin, and mm. and true to the genre, it's very kind of a simple MacGuffin at that. Yeah, it's... You see the Ark do a bunch of shit, but you're never actually given the full explanation even on the matter what it exactly is, what the Ark does, and why the Ark operates like it does. 
Well, it certainly is a working MacGuffin and definitely much better MacGuffin than what you have in the Crystal Skull. Yeah, it is. And in many ways, Riders does not need a full explanation on how the arc works. No, 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 Henrik, but do you think this film kind of loses the full enjoyment of it if you do not believe, if you're not a man of a woman of faith? In my opinion, honestly, no. I don't think that the manner of belief in any way affects riders, affects any of the indie films, or affects the pulp adventure as a genre. I don't know, yeah. Because, you know, I mean, indie films always borrow something from some religion, as it has to, since we are dealing with mythical fantasy. That's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In Riders, it's it's the Christian mythology of Jewish mysticism, and in in Temple of Doom, it's Indian so, religions, where it's once again borrows extremely loosely stuff and never goes into detail. And once again, in the Last Crusade, it's again it's it's the Christian imagery. Building blocks of the Temple of Doom cult comes from beliefs of that region from the native beliefs of of those regions. Uh, yeah, and on top of that, there is also, or in my opinion, in Temple of Doom, there is kind of, kind of a shown the dualism of, of those beliefs. Like there, there is the light side of that belief, which is the village, and and the main religious beliefs that is most prominently shared by the characters. In the film's universe, and then there is the dark side of those beliefs, which is the almost Satan-worshipping cult that lies yeah. in, the, in the bowels and the caves beneath the surface, very literally yeah. in, in Temple's case. And when, when it comes to the second part of your question about the lethality of the of the arc and how much you know sharing Christian religion affect that. It is actually the arc and its little effect is something that has been touched upon every now and then. And one of the I don't know how famous this interpretation or theory would be, but there is the the Finnish UFO logist. Johan of Kran, I don't know, <laughs> have you heard yeah. of the man? He has been quite quiet for the Good. past years. Yeah. yeah, but he really was on the road during the 90s and 80s. And he had actually proposed a theory that inside the Ark of Covenant, uh, there would be an alien transmitter, something that would allow you to, you know, make the connection to the mothership or aliens. And the reason why the Ark of Covenant would be so dangerous would be that that transmitter itself actually would be radioactive. So the lethal effects of the Ark of Covenant would actually be extreme cases of radio poisoning. I know very little of the guy, but he comes off not as a con man, but as a jokester. I don't know which one is the case. He most... Obviously, I, or at least my take is, is that he is not a con man. Like, he really believes in the stuff that he's saying, and he's oh, not God. simply trying to make an easy buck. But, of course, once again, you know, we are, we are dealing with UFO logists, so... Yeah, says it all. 
I don't know if, if if having that belief is better than you know simply being in it for money. Yeah, I I enjoy that 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 they are taking some ancient beliefs and bringing them kind of a believability level. Kind of what if what if all these beliefs were true and this is the result that would ensue. And that is quite typical for the pulp adventures that Indiana Jones borrows very heavily and takes yeah, inspiration of. And precisely because of that, I don't I don't feel that you would have to share those beliefs or that, you know, you not no. sharing those beliefs would in any way kind of harm your your enjoyment. No, no. Maybe as a kid <laughs> maybe as a kid it's still the best way to in- enjoy Indiana Jones when you have these little snippets about your Christianity and whatnot, and then you see this film, it has probably an added effect. Yeah, well, now that you mention it, it actually could be so. Since as a kid, you kind of get the expression riders if you are, a, you know, a kid being brought up with the, in a Christian society, like, for example, in Finland, you kind of, you get the moment where you can kind of see the dangerous side of Christian beliefs. You kind of yeah. Get, get, yeah, you, you get that moment of joy where you can see the, the Ark of Covenant and you, you know the Ten Commandments, which gives you a direct link into Christianity and its stories. And then you can see that, oh, yeah, the Ten Commandments, they can be extremely dangerous. And there can be floating spirits coming out of the ark and all this stuff. Yeah, as a kid, yeah, maybe that does, in fact, it can give you the enjoyment of, of seeing the dangerous side of the of the religion that you might share. And I would say, though, those were kind of different times, Henrik. For example, even in the later primary class years, I remember being on one of these Christianity lessons. And uh, if you would mention that you have, like... <laughs> atheist stances then like most of the class would be laughing at you actually oh you're an atheist <laughs> today i wouldn't say so my experiences were not that that necessarily be laughed at in the school where i went but i too did face very strong opposition very strong teaching the christian imagery and the bible yeah like what, what was the, the stuff that we had to go through, or had to and had to, I didn't really mind, but we did have, for example, these classes where we were asked to choose one Christian story. Like we, we had several, and we were divided into small groups, and every group did choose one. Like, uh, for example, when Jesus splits the... Jesus splits the atom, you were saying. Basically, yeah. It's the how many fishes and how many breads was it and feeds the whole crowd. And so each group would pick one, one story like that and then would do a small play about that story. Yeah, looking back at it, it's kind of really weird. I mean, it is, and seeing how young you were, it's, it's there is that tiny notion of it being a little bit brainwashy. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And the kind of the not having the open discussion attitude. I mean, I think I would have respected the lessons, the classes way more if there would have been like an open discussion, like, okay, you don't have to believe in it and that's not necessarily how it is. 
but it was always like, it is like this, and that's it. And, well, I remember myself enjoying most the moments when we were talking about many different religions. And there the attitudes were kind of more neutral, like, okay, this is this religion, and that's how it, this works for them, and this is that, and that's ours, and, you know, but uh, to give such of an emphasis only for our religion and being religious about it, in fact, and it's out of proportion. I didn't get teaching on other oh. religions until junior high school. I would have to say that this was maybe max what we were taught about different religions was max like almost nothing. Okay, because in my primary school we spent our religion classes actually going through the Bible and learning how to navigate the Bible and how find specific texts from the Bible. Okay, well that's highly more interesting than than just going through the educational books, I would say, because I got a really broken and distorted and messy picture of the whole Bible when I was having those primary school classes. You know, I couldn't like connect the dots like this is happening in what place and how does it connect to this and yeah, could have been like just more organized. Well, this reminds me of another fact. In the geology classes, we had a lot about Europe, Earth, Finland, but you know, very little touching on different countries, which I was always hoping for. We didn't really get to those. And there was a huge section in the books about the planets and the universe and Milky Way. And I was waiting for the whole year that we get to those points. And guess what? We get to that and then our teacher is like, okay, and these are the planets and uh, let's make uh, like a test subject on the planets that you remember them. And okay, now you know in which order to list the planets and now let's move on. That's it. You kind of noticed that at that point that Finland does not have a space program. <laughs> you could say that. <laughs> uh, you can see the reasons why. Well, we got to the bar scene. And as mentioned, uh, the shot glasses take so much abuse from Marion. She doesn't care about her glasses. And Indiana Jones is there to get the artifact from Marion, but he doesn't get it. Marion says, come back tomorrow. Indiana Jones goes away, but actually returns for God knows why. But he does. And during that time already, the Gestapo group is there in full force, destroying the entire bar. Thought makes the notion that your, f your fire is dying here, but exactly it, it, it isn't at all. But anyway. Maybe he was referencing the fire between India and Marion, which they shared all those years ago. Then to be exact, when she was in love and it was wrong. Oh boy. Yeah, let's get to that. Well, Marion was in love <laughs> and so young. And, and, you and know, she was. Yeah, and in, in film's defense, it's it's never stated in the film itself. But for example, the novelization makes the point that not only was Marion in love, he was also 15, and Indy was something like 24 at the moment. Yeah, at least and if you go back to the original material, which may or may not have anything to do with this story here. But it gives the building blocks. But it doesn't state outright that they were 15 and 24. Maybe they were 18 and 24. Who knows? In film's case, yeah, you can yep. make the argument. But it, it is still... The Marian's age has been kind of a talk to the de death already. 
and thankfully in film it does not give you exactly how young Marian during the time. But I actually came, you know, doing the background research, I did come across an article from Polygon, which actually makes the point that while they were kind of planning out the story and having discussions about this and that aspect of the story, there was a discussion apparently between Cassidy and Lucas and Spielberg about Marion's age and a notion was being brought up that hey, what if during that time Marion would have been 11? Mm. Ooh boy! Okay, but she okay, okay. probably wasn't too. Well, no, no, I mean, even in those discussions, yeah, they eventually end up in the notion of 15. Mm. But you, you can kind of see that troubling waters rise up already. I mean, even toying around with the idea. Yeah, but... Uh, with the age of 11. Yeah. Well, I mean, can, 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 you, can you see the moment when Lucas is giving his input on riders? <laughs> and this also, you know, to take it back uh, on some of the more previous scenes in the film, or to take it back into that scene which you mentioned, the COVID kind of sending the I love you message to Indy. In the same way, in, in the novelization, when Brody comes to visit Indy, and I've come to understand that they also originally, they did film it, but they did cut a few frames off. But during that moment, yeah, Indy is putting on his bathrobe, or he's wearing it, and the reason for that one is the fact that Indy is actually having sex with one of his co-eds at the moment when Brody comes for the visit. For the love of God. Yep. Thankfully, also, that is not in the film. Yeah. Perfectly good that it did not make the final cut. But it was planned. I've come to understand that it is in the novelization. And I also have heard that they did actually shoot the scene in a fashion that you would have seen the coed there in in, in this flat. Oh, God. that's. I know that Spielberg had some ideas about this character that it should be very Bondian, like a playboy and having lots of girls during, during this film, so it could even very much be a Spielberg decision to have these connotations. It, it could be. It, it would tie into that Spielberg not having this chance of, of making a Bond and yeah. wanting to, because of that wanting to make Indiana Jones more of a playboy. But yeah, yeah it's extremely troubling. But I have to say that that whole extreme playboy side would have been really un- unnecessary because there's so many qualities already to Indiana Jones. He's an archaeologist, he's a teacher, it's already enough. You don't need to add any any of these things in it. No, and with all that playboyism not being in the film, I think that the scene where Indy gets the I love you message it works better, because now it's so that Indy is seen feeling uncomfortable and being kind of like, how should I react to this situation back at the classroom? But would he actually have sex with the co in the film? It would kind of change the, it would change the feeling of, of that scene. It is such that Indy just as well might just be looking at, you know, where he's going to get tail next. Something about the production of the film. This was never meant to be actually anything extremely fancy or something that you would never forget, a kind of a 
incredible cinema. This was just supposed to be a Spielberg B-movie that would be a lot of fun for the viewers. And it was actually his passion to shoot this film under budget and uh, under schedule. And he succeeded. He had had experiences where everything would go over budget as they usually do and kind of the whole production going would not be under control but here he wanted to prove that yes you can do do this film with a relatively little amount of money and still get great results and they didn't take so many takes for this film and Spielberg did make the notion that in the editing booth there might have been one or two occasions where he was like kind of regretting that in a sense like "Ah, I don't have enough material here to connect that well with this with this transition to here and you know but on the other hand it definitely makes your choices simpler you have this and that and that's all you have to make it work right there and i'm not aware that this movie would have been gone to reshoots for any purpose so they still had enough material to make it work spielberg notably was extremely worried about the budget when it came to raiders since the Three of his previous films had went famously over budget. Uh Yeah, yeah, this was the time period when when the budgets were kind of all over the place and the directors very often went over budget. And previously that had not been such a big problem for Spielberg since both Jaws and The Close Encounters did end up making quite a lot of profit, even though the budget did not he- hold up. Yeah, they but almost closed the Joe's production at, at some point, but Spielberg uh, persevered and made it work. Yeah, but unfortunately, his third film before Riders, the 1941, also went over budget, and on top of that, it did flop yeah. in cinema. So... In many ways, when it came to riders, Spielberg was in the position where he also, not only did he want to prove, but he also kind of had to prove that he, he can stay on budget or even go below it. So he had to show others that he can also be economically wise big for a director. Yeah, not sure how well that worked in the future, but it worked here. It worked here, and that was enough. Especially seeing how great was the box office for Raiders in the end. And then there is the scene in Indy's flat where Brody joins for a drink. Okay, so we get to Cairo, or actually we get to Tunisia in real life. And we have this rooftop scene, and we're introduced to Salah, played by John Rhys-Davies. A wonderful actor. I really like his presence, even though he's always playing the same type of character everywhere. He is really a powerhouse actor. Yeah, yeah. Love this guy. Nice to see. And seems to be a guy who pulls a lot of improvised moments to the scenes. For example, I think it's completely John Rhys-Davies idea to have this singing part when he gets the kiss from Marion. But that's just my guess. Could be. Now, now that you mention it, I in no way would believe that that would be outside of the realm of possibility. Yeah. Then we get to the streets of Cairo. There's the one-eyed guy who causes a lot of trouble for Indy. Kind of a looming presence in the streets. And there is this uh, 
Nazi guy organizing his group in the streets of Cairo to fight against group Jones. It takes like two minutes and there they are with machetes. Which brings us to the most, how should I say, I guess the most crude film scene ever filmed. Which is of course the moment when Indy Anna Jones is challenged by the guy with the machete and he's laughing and all prepared for the battle and Jones gives this, uh, I don't have time for this, and shoots the guy, point blank, and that's it. It famously was so that it was scripted to be a very long fight scene, like three minutes. <laughs> three minutes. Oh, it was? That's yeah. even funnier. Yeah, it, it was meant, meant to be a three minute fight scene. They had drawn <laughs> the storyboards for the fight, which was, well, <laughs> if it's Lucas, if, if we take Lucas's word, it was about 100 images, the entire fight. <laughs> and then they're just like, I don't care, let's just shoot the guy. Yep. Harrison had uh, visited a local restaurantia, e- e- eating some of that local cuisine, and he had actually gotten stomach problems. Oh dear. Like, apparently was the entire cast and crew and everyone involved in the shoot except for Spielberg, who only, you know, ate the foods that he had taken with him. Yeah, good choice. To the Cairo shoot, which was, I don't know how many cans, I I, I guess, you know, something like 150 cans of spaghettios. <laughs> but outside of Spielberg, at some point, relatively everyone involved in the film process had their share of, of stomach problems. But yeah, during this scene, it it was Harrison's turn, and Harrison really was not feeling the, the three-minute fight scene. So <laughs> in, in the act of desperation, he proposed to Spielberg that what if he just shoots the guy then and there, and Spielberg got enthusiastic about the possibility, and yeah, that's how that scene actually came to be. Okay, what a story. Yeah, it's time and time again, I, I think that's one of the most brilliant ideas that you have seen on cinema. It is. And actually the most logical choice to do under the circumstances. You save time, you probably save a lot of bruises, so there you go. And since you already have the gun at hand, why not simply use it? I mean, the other guy is having a sword, so... Yeah, but I also love the look in his eyes when he, he's doing that. And it repeats <laughs> in many scenes throughout the film. <laughs> For example, he's trying to get on the on the plane... But then he's introduced to this macho man who wants to pick up a fight with him. And he's like, oh, God, uh, I have better <laughs> things to do here. I have a flight to catch here, man. Yeah, I've, I've been punched in the face enough times already today. So do, do I really <laughs> have to go through with this bullshit again? <laughs> Love it. It is it is great. Great stuff. Uh, and this scene, is it's kind of the Han shoots first scene of this film. It is, yeah, now that you mention it. And we continue with the true Uncle Scroogean fashion, where the truck explodes that uh, is suggested to hold Marion, but we're given in- enough possibilities here to assume that she wasn't there because, well, she, she didn't make any noise when she was packed into the car, for example. They switched the baskets at some weird point at the time for some unexplained reason. Yeah. Never mentioned why they so owe that trouble, but 
But it is the same realm of realism as is also the whole truck being filled up to the roof with high explosives for some odd reason. Yeah, of course, at least that gives a reason for the explosion, but okay. It, it does, but why, why would you do that? Why would you stockpile explosives into a truck? Well, anyway, Indiana Jones doesn't even check the wreckage, although it's kind of suggested during the explosion shot that he's approaching the truck, but... Then he just decides, nah, not worth checking after all. I just go drink with an ape and cry about Marion. But, but, you know, why wouldn't you? I mean, you can have a drink with the Hitler saluting ape. Oh, yeah. Priority is, man. I would choose the ape myself. And then we get to the Balak. Balak scene. Balak. Well, his name is Balak, and he's the fellow archaeologist that uh, seems to play along with the Nazis. However... A famous rival of India. Yeah, there's... A Bit of great dialogue here all the time. Like, uh, Balak says that, How can I find somebody so close to my own level and try the local sewer? And he makes the notion that, Oh, we are so much alike, and I don't really get the alikeness at all. Except that they are archaeologists. They are both also quite cold-blooded when they need yeah, be. In, in many ways, Belloc is what Indiana Jones could become if Indy would kind of give in to his darker impulses and be even more for the money in the job. Yeah, they're both very passionate about their field of work and would go to any lengths to get their artifacts. There's a notion about the $10 costing watch that uh, Belloc has bought and that it would become priceless when you bury it in the sand. Well, it's funny, but I don't think that's how archaeology really works. Especially when you mass-produce these things. Anyway. And then again, in a way, it also holds certain degree of truth. I mean, archaeology has been gushing all over every goddamn arrowhead that it has managed to dig up from the sand at any given time. Uh, mm. what, what are arrowheads, if not something actually at the time quite unimportant? Much like Belloc's watch here, but something that has been lost to the time for enough that it has gathered this importance. Yeah, then again, I'm doubtful that, well, it would have to be such an incredible destruction here that we would lose all the records. The crazy amount of record keeping that we do nowadays. And to be so lost about history that you would give some kind of a value for this kind of a street vendor clock. Mass but, produced. You know, uh, after a thousand years, it might be so that there has no longer been street vendor clocks mm. for like centuries, and in that time, you know, who who knows? M- maybe that clock in in that part of time it would kind of be a memento for times that have been long gone. Then Salah has the great idea to protect and get India out of the hard situation by risking the lives of a bunch of kids who protect him and get him out of the Marhala bar. It's funny how much they are clinging on to Indy. Seems to be their idol or something. Well, he is the quote-unquote uncle. <laughs> I have to give it to Rift Tracks. I kind of was kind of a good line. Indian Jones says, Marion's dead. Salah says, yes, I know. Her foot landed on my balcony. Zero laughs given from Henrik. Still, uh, Riftrax still not gathering any love from me. Darn. Then we are at Salah's flat. 
fortune teller with the high helium voice says, Come, come, come! And there's a warning in the amulet, apparently, and it holds a goddamn ton of text that can be read in several sentences. There's a warning in the amulet not to disturb the Ark of the Covenant. First of all, I had no idea what the hell they're talking about, uh, so I had to get back to this scene, so six kadam high... I don't know, still don't know what that means, but apparently it's the same as 72 inches, which seems to translate to 1.8 meters. That's not a lot. And then they say, you take back one kadam, uh, which I guess means that you reduce it to five kadams, so it's shorter, I guess, to honor the Hebrew god whose ark this is. So the whatever, it's supposed to be some kind of a map, I guess, to give the distance where the Well of Souls is. And the headpiece has markings only on one side. Well, I don't know, still don't know what the hell they're talking about, but I guess it's kind of making the notion that Thoth has the other side of that emblem, and he doesn't have in his hand the information that is crucial. So Belloc's staff is too long, and hence they're digging in the wrong place. So then you reduce it to 5 kadam length, so what's that then? Like, let's say 1.5 meters. So is there only that much of a difference where they're digging, versus where, where Indy is going to dig? I don't get it. You know, movies. It's kind of hard to say without really knowing how the how the map room works. After some bad dates, we get to the desert where they're digging. Marion appears, so better leave her behind. Not worth taking her out of the tent because it would make too much noise in the perimeter. Well, it it would make Belloc and the other guys see the trouble of going after Marion and trying to re-find her, which, yeah, o- of course, yeah, could lead into them finding Indy. I'm just saying that if you dress like she does and go just on the streets of Cairo, she will be in trouble in no time. I, I'm, I'm taking no part and no side on this conversation. I, I'm, I'm still holding my breath, you know, uh, uh, after the Bosnia episode, so no thank you. Why, why, why? <laughs> Don't you want I, to get I, into I, this water? I'm not juggling with, with this politically could... correct grenade. Oh, what a shame. How about we just talk also about the fact that they are digging for an item that is important to Christians, and the Muslims are digging up that Christian item. Or how about the fact that Salah also is supporting Indiana Jones in this quest, even though... He's supposed to be a Muslim, right? Well, uh, how how not, would you not, what, not, like not, to not, dig not, into that? Not only that, not only that, but you know, uh, digging also up the artifact that is important for the Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Okay, moving on from this territory. Well, we see Todd with the hand marking that he got in the bar, and Todd mispronounces "Heil Hitler." Should be Heil, of course. Well, Indicos inside which room is this exactly just the map room and the next one is the well of souls yeah 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 the room with the staff is the map room. Uh, then the next one the snake pit is the well of souls so indy goes to the map room has a handy dictionary with him to check out what all these markings mean and then it's clear as day aha it's right here it means something and he's really excited about it but we don't know as an audience what the hell it is but it's not important he uses the shtick and i just noticed that the the germans have written something on the pyramid in the middle of the whole miniature it's just something like nicht stören 
Precisely, nicht stören. Do not bother. That's the translation, more or less. But why the hell would you write it on the... <laughs> what the and it's even blocked by these small fences. Here it gets a little weird. John Rhys Davis throws the rope with the Nazi flag on it. I'm not sure exactly what happens in between here because he's found by the Nazis and then he starts to serve the Nazis and somehow he has the time to come back there to throw the Nazi flag at item and then indicates out of there and I don't know, then attention is not paid after all to what Salah is doing there. My take was that it was only those uh, that one patrol of Nazi guards who even noticed that Salah is, is somewhere where he's not supposed to be. And yeah. right after Salah first leaves the premises and shows that patrol that it's okay and he has left the area, then everybody just loses their interest in Salah and he manages to sneak back in. Yeah. Well, there's the tense scene with Marianne and Rin Belak. Belak seems to want to, I don't know, is it, is it a wedding gown, wedding dress? Anyway, I, so f- I, I think it's just a dress. Okay, it's just a dress. In the Cairo desert right now. Well, the mosque is not too far, only three weeks away, as the Belak uses this weird measure of distance. Three weeks to every direction, pure sand. But yeah, Belloc tries to get into the pants of this particular American throughout the film. Not particularly successful after the Well of Souls incident, or in any other part for that matter. Indian and the company finally dig into the Well of Souls, and Indian Salah seem to have superhuman strengths inside the Well of Souls to be able to remove the top cover of the Ark, which happens to be uh, made from stone with just the power of two of them, but nevertheless they do, and Marion is dumped into the same well, in the rips off the lower part of the rest. For the fire! I don't have any promiscuous acts to make in this particular well right now, maybe the next one. The statue appears to be extremely lightweight to be from stone, I mean it shakes a lot when Indy is climbing it, but who knows, maybe it's made from rubber, you know. Theme song starts when the statue starts to fall, ends abruptly, skeletons make noise. Ah. Snake is coming from the mouth of the skeleton, one of the skeletons. It's extremely gross and very well carved into my memory from those childhood years. Luckily enough, they have a extremely easy block that they can just simply push away. I think they weren't even digging from this particular region, but this is out in the open now and they push it away and get out of the snake pit. The aforementioned airplane flight in desert happens. It's basically an airplane flight for nothing. They never take the airplane. And as mentioned, I love the Indus expression when the... Uh, uh, let's just call it Turbo Man. This Turbo Man is vehemently asking for a fight. And Indy says, okay, smack you later. But he has to smack right now. Salah, Indian, Marion at the desert after explosions. Indy says, get back to Cairo, get us some transport to England. By boat, plane or anything. And makes the notion that, how? I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. And it kind of... What I have also thought that it's kind of probably how the scriptwriter feels at this moment. Could be, very much. Seeing how the film itself kind of moves from action set piece to action set piece. Yeah, I mean, what was the point of this airport explosion? <laughs> Just to have some fun. Well, basically, yeah. You, you did get one kick-ass fight scene. Yeah, I guess the they were trying to get into the airplane, but it didn't quite work out. That, that was the... Point. I guess that was the original plan to hijack the airplane and use it to escape. 
But then they ditched the airplane immediately after the Nazis noticed their presence at the airport and after Indy manages to feed the turbo man to the propellers of the plane. Yeah. But seeing how prominent figure Indy is, is in Raiders, it's kind of a surprising to see how often Indy's plans simply goes to hell. Yeah, he doesn't really have the upper hand most of the time here, I would say. And that's something that kind of follows Indy throughout the entire franchise. He's a he's a character who more often than not actually is in this and disadvantage in any given situation. Indy is, is is a character who does not manage to get the upper hand that often in his adventures, and he still does very headstrongly push forward and keep fighting. Yeah, he's uh, that's a good point because thankfully Indiana Jones is kind of a more physical hero and even during the tough times he doesn't give up the fight physically he is always always there trying to get out of this murky situation unlike in some adventures where you have this hero who is now under the control of the enemy and the enemy is not given a lot of things to do for a big portion of the film and it could be that the hero is only able to influence some entities outside of the situation so that he can call the National Guard and bring them to save the day or distract their attention somewhere else so the hero can escape finally. But Indiana Jones is always, you know, pushing it by himself. Yeah, we have some great stunts here and there. Not sure how much Harrison Ford was doing the stunts here, but at least he clearly did have those spiders in his back in the very beginning of the film. And also, I like the mortality of our hero in the sense that hero gets shot here and the blood gets spilled all over the car. So it's nice to know that you can hurt this character. It does bring a lot to the action when you show that the hero actually does get hurt by the proceedings. It's the same thing as with Die Hard, where Mm, making the point how vulnerable John McClane really is Extremely. extremely lot of lot of material to the fights. True, true. So it, it it's good thing that in in both franchises, both in in Indiana Jones and in Die Hard, the later entries to the series have kind of have completely thrown away the point of the main character being vulnerable. At one point during the fight, Indy goes under the truck. Well, they the baddies in the car in front of them would have had ample time of just shooting Indy, but they decide not to do that and just enjoy the show, it seems. And the truck finally drives into Omar's garage, and the baddies don't find him, they just come to this turning point in the road, and and the German kills an invisible dog with a watermelon. Then we cut to the weird captain with a name like Katanga, this cannot end well. But no, he's a good guy after all, and Salah gets a kiss, gets excited, and we get to the ship. Indy gets hit with the mirror. Such lungs, you know. So the whole Turhenian Sea, or the whole Mediterranean Sea, can hear Indy cry in agony. After which we get the kind of a weird shot of this stuff burning inside the arc box, giving you the notion that there's some hidden energy, which we already knew, which is now burning on its own. Also, seeing how how the burning works here in, in this scene, 
with, with the notion that that the power inside the ark comes from God, since the ark holds the, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, which themselves came from God originally, that there is kind of the notion that since, since the burning concentrates precisely on the swastika and precisely burns the swastika, oh yeah, you can you can almost read it like you know at that point not only. Is it foreshadowing for what happens at the end of the film? But you get the, the kind of can get this notion of God being disapproving of Nazis. Good point. Yeah, the Nazis take over the ship. Marion takes makes the notion. Don't you touch me? Uh, what is this movie trying to tell us right here? Do you want to dive deep into it? Because it's not important to leave it in there. Don't you touch me? You could have cut it before that happens. But it's left there and... Yeah, it's not hugely important, but it does show that Marion herself has some spunk and is not that afraid in the end, even when Nazis have the full force on the ship. She's still kind of putting up the resistance, even though that resistance does not lead to anything. Hmm, peace the resistance. Then there's Belloc's smirk at the situation when Marion tries to hit the general, and is rescued from the situation by the Black Capitan. Well, is that a shallow reference to, a kind of low-level reference to the racism of the time? What's your take on this? Uh, I would not take it into that direction. I can see kind of the outlines, how you could make that take on the scene. It's rather amazing that also the Nazis even talking to the Black guy, but it seems that this particular Nazi is as not far in the Nazi end as somebody else might be, because he also makes the notion later on that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with this whole Jewish thing going on here. So he's just a little bit uncomfortable, but not outright completely against it. He also does show that much courtesy to the captain uh, and the ship's crew that he does not explode the ship using torpedoes right after they have returned back to their submarine. Good point. So this guy has, I don't know how it would be without his rank, but maybe it is that uh, the rank outweighs whatever other factors he could see in that human. Now that you mentioned it, it very much actually could have been that. In the swims to the submarine, grey submarine, and the ship group is making a hell of a noise when Jones gets on the submarine. Uh, first thought is like, uh, you know, stop that right now. I guess nobody's listening because he's able to swim with the submarine like like half of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, I'm guessing that Indy is inside the <laughs> submarine at that point and not outside because that would take hell of a big lungs to do that. Even bigger than the ones that he used when he got hit by the mirror. Yeah, that is good. It gives you the notion that seeing how Indy is climbing on top of the submarine, it gives you the notion that Indy is eventually getting inside of the sub. Which, of course, does mean that Indy must roll some natural 20s in his stealth checks in order not to get caught while inside the Nazi submarine. We get to Hitler's party cove that for whatever reason, appears to be in one of the Greek islands or nearby Greece. And there they are, secret base, 
which is actually a weird direction if you are leaving Egypt Cairo when you look at the map well obviously Egypt is where it is so actually it's not that weird perhaps because Indy comes with the ship to the other direction probably going towards Europe maybe to the Italy direction then they're attacked by the submarine group and then they turn back to the secret military base just, just, that just happens to be around Greece. Well, the guard com- comes on Indy, surprises him and does not care about the moment of putting on the clothes and he's just saying something about I only got the Schwein part and then punches him in the stomach. Problem solved, he got some bigger clothes from that guy probably. But still not clean shirt since he's fair chested underneath the jacket. Well, then there is this the weirdest part of the film for me, like the Jewish Nazi covenant cavalcade. The Nazi makes the notion that I'm uncomfortable with this Jewish ritual. Okay, why do they really need to go through this Jewish ritual to reveal what's inside the Ark? Well, it seems that, as mentioned before, the Ark has read the script. Wouldn't Dein Führer be more satisfied if you did not have a Jewish ritual in the islands of Greece with a creepy French archaeologist, I mean. Could you not just test drive the gear on your secret cove base? Why do you have to drag it in the middle of the island? And why the hell is that island so dry? Oh, well, I forgot you're in Tunisia, really. With a rocket launcher? I mean, okay, maybe there's no better choice. But, I mean, couldn't you think of anything better? Some better ammunition, some better gun? I mean, you could have just called R2-D2. For the situation since you are there. Well, you couldn't actually get R2-D2 to help you seeing how you actually smashed him into pieces when you broke out of the Well of Souls. But they do go through this whole operation of carrying it to the cave or some location, but the god is angry and kills everyone and that's it. Chris Wallace was the makeup artist that did the melting face for Thought. They use the same material that dentists use to take a mold of the teeth. I don't know if you have ever had the experience getting to do some kind of a mold on your teeth, but I have, and it's extremely uncomfortable. Imagine somebody, you know, if you have had that in your teeth, imagine that on your entire face and then somebody ripping it off. Uh, that's that's probably gonna hurt a lot. Uh, that is commitment to your craft. Absolutely. And after the mold you make the school of stone and you add different layers of stuff and gelatin that melts and that's the face and of course shot with a high-speed camera or like a, it's like a time lapse which you obviously see nowadays i mean it's a good point that this chris wallace or somebody from the makeup artist said that nowadays they should do you know this practical effects but they should combine it with digital effects to improve upon it you know to get rid of the faults that you have in practical effects as you have pointed out as well in this podcast thought is totally toasted but that's not the only character that bites the dust i guess there's also Balak. with his famous exploding head it was so gruesome and they originally showed the film that it actually merited raiders for uh, raiders an r r rating the film crew really wanted to es- escape that they later on in post-edit added the flame effects so that it covers up a little bit the explosion, making I guess, a bit more viewer-friendly. Very little. <laughs> I mean, it's still a pretty gruesome film when you think about it for the kids. 
It is. It, it, it is surprisingly violent. And Temple of Doom even more so. Even I more guess. so. It's, uh, Temple of Doom is kind of as dark as this series gets. Yeah. Then there's made the comment that the top men are working on discovering what kind of powers this arc holds, but I guess the top men have decided not to be looking into it after all, or the top men have discovered that it's too dangerous, and they just dump it in the middle of an extremely huge warehouse. And looking at it must most definitely be a, a mirror effect to make the warehouse look so big, and it's quite clear that it's a mirror effect. Pretty nice. That's practical effects for you. That's the movie, Henrik. Coming to a fitting conclusion. What do you think about the music of John Williams in this film? I really do like it. I think that the Indiana Jones theme is is some of Williams' best work. I'm a little bit split on John Williams. I will have to say that I'm not the biggest fan of John Williams. I just there, there I, is I'm s- not. definitely something wrong with you. What you you more of Hans Zimmer guy? Well, absolutely, I am. I mean, first of all. John Williams's orchestra in Good and Bad, it always sounds exactly the same. And his orchestrations are always very similar. And if you take out, you know, a couple of the main themes that he goes through, for example, in this film, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. It's just a bunch of noises after each other. It's more like he's doing some experimental shit and not making a lot of, like, not very rhythmic music. But he has the ability to make incredible theme songs, like the indie theme, or which is in this soundtrack actually titled as The Raiders March, which became known later pretty much as the Indiana Jones theme. Then again, when you look at the theme, they are kind of uh, interchangeable. They sound really similar to Star Wars and all the other stuff that he does. And he plays kind of the same notes, right? And it's kind of the same stuff. That's an interesting notion because that's kind of the same problem that I myself have with Zimmer. Okay, okay. I haven't had this problem with Zimmer. Although it's kind of the sin of many musicians for movies that they just have to do something kind of plain and not very melodic and not so interesting all the time because they don't have time or they just don't have any ideas left you know you make a couple of themes around the film and that's all you have time for and maybe that's all you have in your mind and you really can reinvent the wheel only so many times yeah i mean the guy made star wars soundtracks so that worked maybe there is this couple of notes that are just they just work so well to people that he decided okay let's just rearrange these notes and let's see what happens and great stuff happened Definitely. But I really dislike the way that John Williams' orchestra sounds like. I don't know if they're always using the London Symphony Orchestra. But there's a shit ton of echo, first of all, in his orchestra. Well, like there usually is, but there's a lot of that. And it just sounds kind of cold. I don't like the way it sounds. I just don't. I'm not a musical expert in any fashion, but I'm not a big fan of John Williams and his orchestra. But I do admit every day, always, that he makes great themes. And the rest of his soundtrack is like... Like what you hear in Star Wars. Most of the soundtrack. I'm not into that random noise stuff. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's like a, 
it's a type of a fantasy soundtrack that he does time and time again. I don't like it, if that makes any sense. It, it makes. It, it, it makes a lot, a lot of sense, and I'm not disagreeing with you, or, you know, to a point where I would say that you are wrong. I mean, it's a matter of taste. Um, yeah. I quite like it, in a way. I don't have a problem with, with those elements. I do, of course, uh, freely admit that when it comes to John Williams' soundtracks, it more often or not, it is those great themes which carry almost the entire soundtrack. If you listen to a lot of John Williams, you get a lot of music that I like, which you described as experimental, but you don't get those incredible highlights. Except maybe in the themes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, give a face to it. In in the Raiders soundtrack, there is the Raiders March, which is the definite highlight of the entire soundtrack, and really is something to talk about, and then the rest of the soundtrack does not reach the level of the Raiders March. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Of course, the theme always kind of is the, supposed to be the main arc of the soundtrack but you know i it doesn't speak to me it's like just seeing many reviewers giving it just five stars five stars for the entire soundtrack i'm like did you listen to the soundtrack i mean what's there so amazing at points that you would give it five stars just for the main theme i guess well uh it's an it's an in my opinion it's an okay soundtrack those other songs are pretty good in in their own right they don't rise to the level of, of the Raiders' March, the theme song, but I think that they do a pretty well a job as, as what they are. This is a problem that uh, often arises with movie soundtracks, where, the, where there is that, that one theme that is really, really strong and is the iconic piece of the music and the rest of the soundtrack is not on that level. Like, I had the exact same experience, for example, with, with with the soundtrack of Conan the Barbarian, where is that the official theme of the film and rest of the soundtrack is not as strong, or likewise with Robocop, where the uh, Robocop theme is extremely strong, and yeah. the rest of the soundtrack is more or less different takes of the theme, or then, you know, good music, but not on the same level as with theme. Yeah. Also, I have to wonder, I mean, in how many occasions does the composer first do the rest of the soundtrack first and then do the theme song? I don't know if that would be a better order on how to do it. You know, you first come with the passion for the less important elements, let's say, and then you have to figure out how to do the title track. Well, if if, if that then means that the title track is going to be shit, then that, that, that's probably not going to work. There, can, there is a... a- of course, you have to take into account the fact that in a movie soundtrack, a lot of the songs that are being written and recorded recorded are made for less important scenes, and the theme song is reserved for the main events. But that that is automatically kind of the point where you put mo- most of your energy, since that is the most clearing part of the soundtrack and rest of the music that you make is kind of a just a complying with scenes. Yeah, maybe. It depends how you approach it then. Like, everything should be important. You can raise so many scenes with better music. But uh, there's also 
how you approach it like directorially I guess as well like are you going to give more focus to the music or kind of keep it in the background where it's just amplifying what's happening on the screen it's an approach that you have to decide but premiere and box office the budget was an estimated 80 million and cumulative worldwide according to imdb is 389 million dollars around the time not bad not at all kind of a bank exploding box office jumping on to video games which have been not unfortunately as plenty as I would have hoped personally. There was the original Riders of the Lost Ark, the movie tie-in game which was made for Atari 2600 console, but most notably, and then there were the platformers for Super Nintendo and Sega Master System. Yeah, with the name Raiders of the Lost Ark also. Uh, not not with that name. They are more tied into the franchise in general. And now that you mention it, I, if I remember correctly, even the Master System game was tied around the Last Crusade. It's really hard to actually for me to remember on the spot since it's been, what, fucking decade or two since I last played it. Yeah, if we, like, think about uh, series-wise, there is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom for... Famicom slash Nintendo Entertainment System NES released in 1988 Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and I guess from the Raiders of the Lost Ark you don't really have any other games than the Atari game it seems no no it almost looks like no one ever believed in Raiders enough to make game deals uh, and <laughs> you know you get all the indie games only after Raiders once That's... the film has yeah. actually Proved that it has franchise potential. Kind of funny, kind of funny because all the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you could just even later make fantastic games out of this, you know, from the beginning to the end, especially from the beginning, it's pure video game material with all those uh, boulders that are following you and a cave that is collapsing and you could make a puzzle game or puzzle adventure. Which were made later on. There were the LucasArts adventures which covered at least the third film in the early uh, 2000s right oh yeah well there was also in 96 indiana jones and his <laughs> desktop adventures which oh. were extremely terrible to play uh, i tried it and i tried it also the the sister product the star wars desktop adventures and they were both excruciatingly bad guess as bad as the title kind of the Best Indian Jones gaming that you could get were the early point-and-click adventures. The Last Crusade and most notably the Fate of Atlantis. Sequels, we of course have them. This is followed by, if you still don't know this franchise, followed by Temple of Doom and then followed by Last Crusade with Sean Connery. And then after that, absolutely fucking nothing. And then after that, absolutely fucking nothing. Yep. Let's leave it at that. If you are trying to bring up notions of, the, of a, some kind of a fourth film in the trilogy, it most definitely does not. Yeah, I think there was some rumblings that they were going to do it, but they didn't. Yep. Okay, the categories of pure swiftness. Favorite performance. Go ahead. Uh, I guess it goes without saying to Harrison Ford. <coughs> yeah. Indiana Jones has been created right here. Let's go with Harrison Ford. Favorite scene. Well, let's 
let George Lucas go first. His favorite scene is the basket case. Harrison Ford doesn't know. Spielberg favorite scene. Truck chase going under the truck with a whip. And Henrik? I would go with... Even even though I do very well understand why going down under the truck with the whip would be picked, I myself would go with the indie shooting saber-wielding guy. Yeah, I would go with that as well, but if to pick something else, I would pick the the introduction of this film, the entire cave scene. It's perfect. It is. It is extremely perfect, as is the truck fight that Indy goes through. Yeah, that chase scene takes like 55 years, but... But it's worth every day. (laughs) Favorite quote. Spielberg go first. Spielberg said that it might be... Why did it have to be snakes? Asps. Very dangerous. You go first. I would even side with Spielberg on this. Well, actually, quite surprisingly, so would I. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh yeah, there's a similar bit of humor in the cave in the beginning. Indy says something like, wait here. And the goon is like, if you insist, senor. I like that too. Also, now now that you mentioned the cave dialogue, later on when the goon refuses to help Indy in order to steal the golden idol and goes, adios senor. And later on Indy remarks, adios stupido. I thought that the line is stupido as well, but then I look at my subtitles and let me see. The subtitles say adios satipo. How boring, man. I guess the line is not stupido, but it's satipo, which happens to be the name of the character in this film. Let me hear it again. I would still say it's stupido. That is uh, my understanding also. And if I remember correctly, the Finnish subtitle track does support that. Yeah. Yeah, that's how it was, what came from TV, and it was recorded VHS as well. Favorite kill? I would pick the whole trio, Belloc, Thoth, and Dietrich, as they die at the very end of the film. I sure as hell do love my melting and exploding skulls. Yeah, I'll just mention Thoth, because that's so legendary. That's uh, the stuff of nightmares for a kid right there. Oh, then something to really get you interested in archaeology. The exploding heads. <laughs> Precisely the exploding heads. <laughs> Hendrik, how do you take your take your soups usually? Do you take it with ape brains? Very good call, actually. I really did not wait for that reference. <laughs> I guess, yeah. And before that, I make my best effort to swallow whole fistful of snakes. Not for a fistful of dollars, but a fistful of snakes. Good call. I, myself... Could try in this lifetime, perhaps, kind of a soup taken from the ape's brain, even though I kind of try to enjoy the vegan choices, especially when in Finland, because it's so easy. But uh, if there is no risk of contaminating my contaminating my soul and my whole body with some kind of uh, ape disease, then that's okay. It kind of would be one of those experiences that you simply would have to try out simply for the enjoyment of trying it out. If you are not from Finland, then I thoroughly recommend watching the first season of the Madventures TV series from Finland. If you find it with subtitles, I extremely recommend it. If you don't, then, well, I guess you're 
your hands are tied and you must watch the third season where they speak English. Well, it did come out in DVD. Uh, yeah. As far as I remember, those DVDs do have the English subtitle. Okay, makes sense. So first image that comes to mind... Would be Indy running away from the border at, during the temple escape at the beginning of the film. One of the most copied and borrowed scene in film history. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much that. It's most likely that. But also when I think of this film, I could also go to the scene with the turbo man, just about to punch into his face. But Henrik, which image best exemplifies this film? I would go with the jungle in the beginning. I, on the other hand, could pick the moment when Indy first enters the bar and Indy's shadow is cast on the wall. Yeah, like Steven Spielberg said, that there are a few characters that you can only show the shadow of and people know exactly what's going on or what, what it's related to. That's one of those is Indiana Jones and one of them I guess is the E.T. Maybe a couple of others. T-Rex. <laughs> but yeah, those kind of shots and images are kind of a far and few between movies altogether. Yeah. What took us out of the Raiders of the Lost Ark? On my part, nothing. Absolutely fucking nothing. I was once again glued to the screen throughout the entire running time. Same same feelings right right here in the studio where we are starting to fall asleep. You know, it's been a rough day. But <laughs> it's, it's getting close to midnight at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> what pulled us in? That's well. actually quite easy. I mean, there there is a lot of things that can pull you in, in riders, but if you would have to pick one, and go, go with that. The most notable and most easiest would obviously be... <laughs> There's that. And also the kind of... I think it's a bit comedic when he's riding the statue in the Well of Souls. And... <laughs> but then it just ends <laughs> after like three seconds. Yeah, it's, it's extremely tri- uh, triumphant music playing around when... Basically, things are more or less simply going straight to hell. <laughs> what pulled me in particular? I don't know, I guess, I guess they're, they could have kept the pace a little bit more going in the extremely long car chase near the end. But, uh... God damn it, there, there really is nothing wrong with the car chase. <laughs> yeah, you get you get a bunch of murder, you get that moment when Indy is being thrown through the windshield and ha- has to hang on, you know, the front of the car and then in the uh, nick of time, you know, goes under the car and comes uh, out of the other end and climbs back into the car. It's just pure, you know, it's pure genius. Yeah, it's great. But if anything in particular, I guess, I would just have to go with the beginning cave once again. Uh, like I said before, it is extremely strong sequel. Yeah. It's it's one of those ways, kind of a go-to example, how you should open your movie. Here are the keys to the back door of the editing booth, Henrik, and here are the scissors, and what would you cut or change? I would most likely, with those scissors, I would rather cut my own hand than mess with this film. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's just right. I definitely wouldn't make it any longer. It's just fine as it is. Wouldn't touch it. Why? No reason. Henrik, would you recommend Raiders of the Lost Ark? 
what the hell do you actually mean would I recommend to Raiders of the Lost Ark? It's, it's a goddamn Indiana Jones film. Of course I would fucking re- recommend Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's, it's oh w- one of those films you just have to watch and if you watch it at young age it's even more better because it actually opens up the entire world for you and ma- kind, of, kind of gives you those, <laughs> those first teachings that you need to learn to make your way in the world. When I yeah. first saw Raiders, I did know nothing about Holocaust, I did not know nothing about World War II politics, or even even really about Nazis. But I did watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I immediately picked up that punching the Nazi in the face is a goddamn good times. I can already hear the faults of this microphone. It's always falling into places. Or was it not falling just a minute ago? <laughs> it was most definitely falling. <laughs> Yeah. Would I recommend this film? <laughs> what kind of a question is that? Well, yeah, I, I, I would. But I have seen this, this once again so many goddamn times that there's no need for me to recommend it for myself right now. But yes, it's essential cinema, so watch it if you haven't. And if you haven't, you probably are like 11. No, no, no. 11 is already too old for Well, goddamn, I was 11 when I watched watch it. This, you, you, are, you are a goddamn newborn, or there is something wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. You put the feather on when you're in your diapers. But, Henrik, like an additional question, because it's not always the same thing, you know? Would you recommend this film, and did you like this film? So, did you like this film? No, I absolutely hate it. Th- th- thank God, finally, after a long wait, we finally got The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which showed us how it should have been made from the start. Oh dear, I'm not even going to answer anything to this question. What the hell is our next film, Henrik? I really don't know. Seeing how it's the Pride Week going on here in Lapland, I would propose Hellraiser. <laughs> For all your needs to feel gay. Yeah, we will tear your pants apart next week. And until then, you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. And yeah, basically, Hellraiser is one of the movies that I know Henrik likes quite a bit, I understand. And there is a bit of history between us and Hellraiser. So. We'll find out exactly what the hell that is next week. Until then. If you insist. Senor. <laughs> <laughs>